Good morning, my sweetheart church. It's great to have you today for the celebration of worship, especially the celebration of the Lord's table. How many of you know that we were part of planting a church in Port Orchard? Raise your hand. What's, its, what's the church's name? Kitsap House. How many know that we've been part of planting a church in Birmingham, Alabama? We have been, and today we have the opportunity of hearing from the founding pastor of that church, Pastor Zach Hicks. He and his wife Abby planted that church not very many years ago, and it is thriving, and we thought it would be well for us to have a chance to meet and hear from one of our partners in ministry a long way across this country. Zach is something of a Renaissance man. He is an author, he is a musician, he is a worship leader, he is a professor, he is a preacher, and he is a church planter. We had the opportunity to hear from him at Presbytery, and I need to tell you, it was captivating. And then we got a chance to hear him first service today, and it was great. You're going to be blessed by what he brings to us today. I want you to start by blessing him, by welcoming him in good old Chapel Hill fashion way, Pastor Zach Hicks. Thank you. Grateful for you. Grateful for you. Very grateful to all three of you who knew that we were planting a church together in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, so grateful to be here. I know actually many more people um, know that than raised their hands. And what a gift. I'm sure when I came up here, you thought you were going to hear a southern accent. And I'm really sorry to disappoint you. Just average western me. I didn't grow up there. And so uh, I'm a Western guy planting a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Grateful to be with you, honored, thankful to the Lord for the way. There was a, a season where before we found someone to do our church bookkeeping, where I had the blessing of opening up checks that would come to our church. And I got the opportunity to go to my mailbox and watch the Lord give me this day my daily bread. It's really meaningful to see God's provision for a, a local church that he's birthing in such a tangible way. And you all, through your prayers and support, have played a role in that missionary work as we try to reach people who are falling through the cracks of cultural Christianity in the Christ-haunted South. And I'm grateful for our partnership in that gospel ministry. And um, it's, it's been a wild ride. I've experienced more joy in ministry in this last year of planting this church than I have in a long time. And part of that joy is simply watching the church be the church across the United States and pour into one little place in a little corner of the country of Birmingham, Alabama. Um, so thank you. And as we approach the Word of God, I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. Hear now God's Word. And when the hour came... He reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to do with your word that which only you can do, to show us our need for Jesus and to give him to us. Amen. So today's passage is obviously really important. It's Luke's account of the night when Jesus instituted what Christians have been practicing ever since. Jesus gave us a ritual to give us his gospel. He wasn't just content with us hearing the gospel, though hearing is important, right? Remember the words of Paul in Romans 10. Faith comes through hearing, he said. Paul is saying, in essence, is your faith struggling? Do you want more faith? Come, hear the good news of Jesus again. Hearing the good news about Jesus is how faith grows. In fact, it grows in no other way but through hearing the good news of Jesus. But the beauty of the Lord's Supper is this, and this is kind of trippy. Hang on with me with this. When Jesus gives us his body and blood at the table, he opens up our other senses to hearing the gospel. Do you get what I'm saying? God is so gracious that we not only get to hear the gospel with our ears, in a sense we now get to hear the gospel with our eyes as we behold the physical bread and cup. We get to hear the gospel with our noses as we smell of the fruits of the earth. We get to hear the gospel with our mouths as we taste and see that the Lord is good. We get to hear the gospel with our hands as we touch those emblems of his crucifixion. Like Thomas, whose faith was struggling, was invited to touch Jesus' hands inside. Jesus is giving us a multi-sensory hearing of the gospel. Not just hear how much I love you, but taste how much I love you. Touch, feel how much I love you. Smell how much I love you. See how much I love you. Look at how creative and generous and kind he is to institute something in a lasting way so that we can hear I love you through our whole body. Praise Jesus, right? What a gift. Chapel Hill is in a sermon series on Luke. We're not only paying attention to these stories, therefore, but we're paying attention to the unique way that Luke tells these stories, the gospel according to Luke through Jesus Christ. Remember, it's called the gospel according to Luke, which means that when Luke is telling all these stories about Jesus and stringing them together, he intends that you hear good news. He intends that whatever story is being told about Jesus, that you're hearing good news about Jesus. There are some unique features in Luke's account of the Last Supper that make certain themes stand out with a bit more clarity. Those themes are present 
in the two other gospel accounts, of course, in Matthew and Mark, but Luke seems to bring them into more stark relief. Today I'm going to highlight three for your encouragement and comfort. I'm going to name them first, and then I'm going to offer a little illustration that helps us to see how they all hang together when we receive communion. And then I'm going to unpack each one, and hopefully, on the other side of this, we're all worshiping Jesus with a little bit more wonder, and we're all experiencing his presence with greater joy and greater hope at the table. So here are the three things rising out of the text for us today. First, communion is past Passover. Second, communion is future party. And third, communion is present grace. Past Passover, future party, present grace. Before we unpack each of these realities of past, present, and future at the table, though, an illustration that I think gets us close to the bone of the odd and wonderful experience that communion really is, I would like to offer to you the idea that communion is a wormhole. Now, unless you're up on your astrophysics or science fiction, you're less likely to know what I'm talking about, and I don't know about you, but I grew up being forced to sit there while my dad watched Star Trek. Like OG Star Trek, like 70s Star Trek. Yup, Captain Kirk, Spock, Bones, Uhura, God rest her soul, the spandex, the beam me up Scotty, the chest communicators. Of the many things in Star Trek, one was the insertion of a lot of astrophysical speculation and theory. And on Stardate 46379.1, Deep Space Nine science officer Jadzia Dax discovered, wait for it, the Bajoran wormhole. The first and only completely stable wormhole known to the Federation with both ends at fixed points in space. I know you're riveted right now. A wormhole is basically a theory that there exist portals in space-time. These portals are kind of like tunnels between two black holes that act as a shortcut between two points. The idea is that if you enter a wormhole, you're able to traverse a distance light years away in a matter of seconds, or as someone corrected me at the, at the end of the service yesterday, instantaneously, because they've been nerding out on it too, all right? Usually impossible to move across space-time in this way, but this is what is made possible by the speculated wormhole, right? If any of you saw the movie Inception, and uh, by the way, I'm not a prop sort of guy, but this one makes sense, so forgive the kind of proppy sermon moment that this is. But if you saw the movie Inception, a guy explained a wormhole by doing something like this, and I thought it was useful for us. He drew two dots on a piece of paper, and he said, imagine an ant trying to get from one point to another point. It would take them a bit of time. Imagine that these dots are a lot longer than just this space. But even in this space, it would take an ant a matter of time. And what a wormhole is, is bending space-time in such a way where you are instantaneously able to kind of jump from one point to another because of the way that physics works in this. And one of the things I want to kind of point out to you is that communion is very much a sort of spiritual wormhole by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you love my beautiful illustrations? My next career, I'm going to draw and be an artist and make tons of money. <laughs> you might think of it in this way. We have this past 
cataclysmic event, this apocalyptic event known as the cross. And we have this uh, future party that's waiting for us, the wedding supper of the Lamb that we've been singing about and focusing on in the service today. That's why there's a little chalice with a party hat, because that's how I draw. But then there's you in the present, you and me right here. The idea is that when we come to the table, God really does, in a, in a way, spiritually by faith, kind of bend space-time over each other that, such that these points in reality become one. The cross is brought to the present and we're beholding Jesus Christ crucified. The future party is taken from the future and brought back to us so that we have foretastes. We'll get there in a moment. But according to Luke's account, based on on that kind of visual, communion is past Passover, future party, and present grace. So first, past Passover. Luke places emphasis on the text, on Jesus instituting what we now call the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover. Verses 13 through 14, And they prepared the Passover when the hour came and he reclined at table. What hour are we talking about here? The proper liturgical hour of the Passover celebration. Luke's account, unlike Matthew and Mark, has a bit of strange ordering though, actually, in verses 17 through 20. Did you notice that? That it starts with the cup, and then it goes to the bread, and then it goes to the cup again. You and I are used to hearing communion in the order of bread, cup, and this is how all the other accounts read, and this is how it works in Paul's passage when we quote it, when a minister stands before you and says, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and then Jesus took the cup. So why is Luke different here? Well, Luke is wanting to emphasize the connection to this Hebrew old ancient ritual called Passover, perhaps even more strongly than the other gospel writers. In a traditional Jewish Passover celebration, you've got multiple cups being lifted up and addressed and drunk from, with the father from the family sharing at various times about the significance of each cup. That's how the Passover works. Passover, right, is celebrating the event from the Exodus where they had to flee, where they marked the, the doorpost with blood so that the angel of death would not come upon them. And so Passover is remembering the salvation of God out of Egypt. And to commemorate this, the ritual was to lift up multiple cups. And Luke is intent on showing us how Jesus is inserting himself into these rituals. Jesus, the great teacher, is, in a sense, not changing the meaning of Passover, but transposing it into a Christological key. He's transposing Passover into a key that rings out Jesus with more clarity and boldness. Though it's not unveiled for the disciples quite yet, what we can see as the rest of the story unfolds is that Jesus is drawing a straight line from the Passover event in Exodus to the cross. In effect, he's saying, that Passover lamb that you eat, that sacrifice that you make, that blood on the doorpost that spares your life from the angel of death, that's all about me. In verse 19, he's saying, this bread, this Passover bread, it's actually my body that you've always been celebrating here. 
He's saying this cup, this Passover cup, it's actually the new covenant in my blood, which is for you, which you've been celebrating all this time. That's about me. We've been celebrating our liberation from Egypt for centuries, but I want you to know this. You were celebrating my liberation of you. The Passover isn't only an ancient Hebrew liturgical custom. It's a prophecy of the cross. And just as Jesus was dragging that past event of of Passover through the space-time continuum to the present and binding it up with his imminent cross, so it is that when you and I come to the communion table, the cross of 2,000 years ago is bending over time and becoming present to us by faith. It certainly takes the imagination of faith to grasp this, though, that when I receive the bread and cup, I am being transported to the foot of the cross, to behold my bleeding, dying Savior. When we sing the old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The true Christian answer is this, yes, I am there by faith every time I receive his body and blood. I am there because communion is a past Passover. But second, communion is a future party. I don't think we think about this enough. We don't spend enough time here. So I remember growing up in my church. In that tradition, we celebrated communion pretty infrequently. But when we did, it went like this. First off, the the leaders in the church wore black suits. And you have to know this about me. I'm from Honolulu, Hawaii. Supposedly the most casual state in the Union. So in Hawaii, black suits meant serious business. You didn't see those too much out there in culture. And so uh, the men wore their black suits and the communion table was covered with a white cloth. When it came time to celebrate, the leaders would stand on either side of the table and lift the cloth in tandem and ceremonially fold the cloth almost like one would fold a flag at a military graveside. It was serious. It was solemn. No one was smiling. And everything about the experience screamed funeral. And I don't want to completely disparage that, actually. Communion is a solemn place, is it not? We meet with the living God. We're confronted with the sacrifice of Christ, which means that we have to stare all the ugliness of sin and brokenness in the face. But for me, that's the only picture that I got of what communion was. Communion equals sad, sad funeral of a sinner before a crucified Savior. And if that's your picture, like it was for me, you should find this text in Luke absolutely stunning. Look with me at a few verses, verses 15 through 16. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And here it is. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Luke makes sure to show us that Jesus emphasized this twice. What is he saying? There is a future party in store for you that will blow your mind. Isaiah prophesied it when he foretold of a time when, listen to this, on this mountain, 
The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And the Apostle Paul, Apostle John the Revelator confirmed it in the Bible's final book that we read when he told us of the future marriage supper of the Lamb that we are all destined for. And the way it is described, I'm not sure how to relay it to you adequately. Think of the, the best party that you've been to. Think of the most exhilarating, festive experience that you've ever had. Think of the best meal you've ever eaten, the best interaction with people you've ever had, the best joy, fun, and revelry you've ever experienced. Think about all that and then do a little math. Subtract all the human stupidity that accompanied it probably. All the sin and brokenness that got tangled up in it. But then take that and multiply it by all the feel, uh, by, well, I don't know, maybe infinity. All the feelings by infinity that you had. And we're getting, therefore, a little bit close to what that future party will look like. That kind of math gets us in the ballpark of what that glorious day will be. And when Jesus makes all these promises of holding off any kind of celebration until you're there with him, he has that in mind for you. You see, Jesus is no prude. Jesus is a partier. Remember the accusations of the Pharisees. He must be a glutton and a drunkard, they said. He hangs out with them. He laughs too much. He's too much fun. Following God can't be that, fu that much fun. Following God's serious business, right? And Jesus says, you don't get it at all. I haven't come to shrink life. I haven't come to make people feel less human. I haven't come to stifle you or shut you down. I have come for your maximization. I've come to give you a wide place. I've come to give you open pastures. I've come to give you the abundant life. And Jesus is saying to us, every communion we come to, don't forget the party's coming. And he drags that future party through the wormhole and he pours a little bit of that wine from the goblet that is to come into your cup. And he grabs a little bit of that bread from the table of the wedding feast of the lamb and he hands it to you and says, taste this. Here's a foretaste of what's coming. The table of Holy Communion is an appetizer taken directly from the table of the future heavenly banquet. Jesus says, I promise. What you're tasting now, I'm not going to taste until we're together. Because I love you that much, and I'm waiting for my bride. Communion is a future party. It's a reminder through the pains and present suffering of this life that you and I experience now. That your certain future is nothing but blessing, peace, and joy. I promise, says the Lord. Third, communion is present grace. I actually think that one of the devil's greatest schemes with communion is to discourage struggling Christians from coming to the table. He wants nothing more than to throw your guilt and your shame and your sin in your face such that you suddenly feel disqualified from experiencing, ironically, the very grace that loves, heals, and restores you. 
There's a nearly fabled tale of an old Scottish professor of the Bible attending an old stone church in Edinburgh. This particular communion Sunday, he was feeling a very heavy weight of sin and guilt and was contemplating passing over the elements as they came round to him. Two rows ahead of him, he actually saw a young woman painfully sobbing. He internalized and analyzed her pain and sorrow and realized that both of them were actually viewing communion incorrectly. Understanding and seeing her struggle at the acceptance of the grace given, he leaned forward to her and he said, Take it, woman. It's for sinners. There's something that you and I often pass up and pass over about the grace of Christ on that first night of the Last Supper. But the text of Luke is actually throwing it in our face. You need your Bibles open to be able to see the surrounding context. The episode of the Last Supper is nestled in a greater narrative of betrayal. The story is flanked both in its beginning and its end by the betrayal of Judas. Earlier in chapter 22, verses 3 through 6, we see Judas plotting with the religious leaders. And then at the end of our passage, that moment where you probably felt awkward, like why is this present in this beautiful communion narrative? In verse 21, we hear the ominous words of Jesus, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now I want to give you an insight that we often overlook. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And Jesus still gave him the bread and the cup. Now, this makes us uncomfortable from a moral standpoint, right? Because Judas is a pretty big scoundrel. In fact, he's a pawn in the hands of Satan, right? Church fathers have sometimes called Judas' participation in the table that night the unholy communion. I sometimes wonder, though, if we might recognize that the betrayal went a lot further than Judas. Recall that by the time Jesus was crucified, all had deserted him. All had left. Jesus was alone on the cross. And on that last supper night, think about it. Jesus knew that. And guess what? Jesus looked into Peter's eyes that night and said with all love and grace, this is my body which is for you. This is my blood, which is for you. You, Peter, who will deny me three times, you who will reject me, I will not reject you. Every communion, what we call the words of institution, are headlined with these lines that we often think of as throwaway lines of the Apostle Paul, but they're anything but throwaway lines. Do you remember them? What's the first thing a a minister says when they're instituting the Lord's Supper? On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. Why is that detail in there? Because you and I, we're betrayers. Because you and I, we are Judas. Because you and I, we're Peter. And that means that truthfully, 
Every communion, from our vantage point, is an unholy communion. And the mind-blowing truth is, on the night that you and I betrayed Jesus, on the week where you really messed up, Jesus turned right back and said, this is all of me for all of you. I love you. And I will always love you, no matter what. Did you forget? I'm here to remind you that there's nothing that you can do to separate you from my love. Every time you come to the table, I hope there's only one face that you ever see staring back at you from our Lord. It's the gentle face of our Savior, who with tears says, I don't know what you thought that you'd find coming here, but I tell you, I've only got love for you. I forgive you. You're mine, and nothing, nothing will ever change that. Past Passover, future party, present grace, a weary Christian, why wouldn't you come to the table? Take Jesus. He's for sinners. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we are so prone to think more small of your grace. We're so prone to believe that your gospel isn't as true as you say it is. We're so prone to take your promises and disbelieve that they're actually true or minimize them. So Lord, send your Holy Spirit down in a fire to help us to believe this is actually true that when we come to the table, your love is as good as you say it is. Give us grace to believe that it's true and help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name we pray, who is present with us now. Amen. One of the things that this church asked me to do, I was talking with Presbytery about some of the ways that we celebrate communion at our church. One of the things we use is a liturgy from Kenya. And in this liturgy is this little section where we uh, hold up our hands before the Lord. And we'll do that in just a bit. I want to explain it um, to you. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this. I actually don't like this. Sometimes when we're called to worship, someone like me might stand up before you at the beginning of a worship service and say, leave all your burdens at the door. Come on in and worship Jesus. Because what I think when I'm told to leave my burdens at the door is, well, what happens when I hit that door on the other end of worshiping Jesus? I have to go and pick up that thing that I stowed away and carry it right out. And I think Jesus wants something different for you when you come into his presence. Jesus wants you to grab that burden, walk it straight down the aisle, and throw it down at his strong and capable feet. And watch him pick up that burden and shoulder it on your behalf and take all that stuff with him straight to the cross, straight to the grave, and unite you to himself so that you come out lifted and restored, knowing that the burden is something to bring in to Jesus. And so one of the things that the Kenyans have taught us to do in a worship service is to, as we come to the table, to lift all our problems, all our discouragements, all our hopes and dreams and fears and pains, and give them to Jesus. So if you would, for a brief second, would you stand with me?
And I want you to experience the feeling of holding your hands up. And as you hold your hands there for a while, feel the weight of whatever burden you specifically came in to worship with. Hold it up to the Lord. And then as I offer you the first word, respond with me. All our problems we send to the cross of Christ. All our difficulties we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works we send to the cross of Christ. And all our hopes we set on the risen Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take that ritual that we just did and actually lift the burdens in this room. I pray for any soul who's doubting that they're worthy to come because they know what kind of week they had. They know what kind of month they had. They know what kind of person that they've been. I pray that you would help them to take that very self straight to your cross and to hear your gracious words. It is finished. So I pray that you transform this community into the very body of Christ as we partake of your body and blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. with faith and when before the throne.
Spirit would convince us of our need for Jesus and then that the Holy Spirit would give us Jesus. And he certainly has, hasn't he? In the music, in the word, in the sacrament. I'm so glad you were here to be a part of that. And I invite you to come back tonight. This is not for a select few of the really spiritual folks. This is for every one of us. We need to worship. We need to pray. We need to beg God to bring revival to this community, this church, our lives, our world. So come back tonight. You're going to have a chance to see another side to Zach Hicks that I know will be a blessing to you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, delightful Abby, for being with us. As we always remind you, nothing that we've heard today is possible by gritting our teeth and working harder. The only way that we can become more and more like the people that God created us to be is to allow more and more of his spirit to take hold of us. So I invite you to raise your hands up and receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace both now and forevermore in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All of God's people said, Amen.